0: Take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 73. Switching the order of our consideration of Psalms from evening services to the morning service this morning, because I'll be in Walker tonight, God willing, and Reverend Slapsamo will be here tonight. I want also to spend some time with Psalm 73 to do justice at least to try to do justice to the wonderful psalm that it is. So we want to read Psalm 73 and make some introductory comments and, as is usual, three points about the text, which will be in front of us in verse 1. So hear the word of God through Asaph. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens. That would be against God. And their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the the ungodly, who are always at ease, increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream, when one awakes, O Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God, that I may declare all your works. Thus far we read this word from heaven to our earth. May God bless us in this wonderful and always relevant word of God. And that which we consider today is the word of God through Asaph. Verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. Just a word about Asaph by way of introduction. He was one of the principal singers and musicians in the um, time of David and the time of Solomon as well. Asaph was outstanding among them, and he was given to write different psalms. In fact, in Second Chronicles twenty five or first Chronicles twenty five one we read this of David or of Asaph. Moreover David and the captains of the army separated for the service, the worship some of the sons of Asaph, of Heman, and of Jeduthun, who should prophesy with harps, strings, stringed instruments, and cymbals. And so what is being said here is that the instrumentalist or musician and composer Asaph was also a prophet, as were his sons, meaning that God spoke through them, sang through them the truth as it is in Jesus, also, this is what we need to remember in Psalm 73. In fact, there is outstanding truth here of the goodness of God, and this is what is celebrated in our text. The fact that God is good to Israel with a particular saving and blessed good is what is brought out front and center in the Psalm that is our text, and the text that is from Psalm 73. This is amazing, beloved, and it's so important for us to understand the concept of the goodness of God to Israel, that we want to take some weeks on this, that we can ponder this, maybe ponder this for the first time, or ponder it anew. The fact that God is good, that is denied today. The fact that God is good in a singular way in Jesus to Israel, the church, is not understood so well today. And practically speaking, the problem that the psalmist faced, the the problem not only of truth, but truth on the ground, is ours today, too, a problem. In fact, it was a great temptation for Asaph, this problem on the ground of understanding, living out of the truth of the goodness of God. It was such a problem, he says, as for me, Even though it's true that God is good to Israel and therefore to me, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. He was envious of the wicked who seemed to have much more of the goodness of God than he did. And he was wondering, how can God be just here and good when he says he's the God of Israel but all of the wicked seem to be having a heyday and walking on easy street, and prospering on Wall Street. In fact, it was so bad that at one point in the Psalm, verse 13, he says, Surely I've cleansed my hands in vain. He was ready to throw out his religion. He was ready to say, forget this, this thing of being pure, this thing of being pure of heart, I'm going to just do as the heathen because they seem to be prospering in their wickedness, and God is not paying attention to them, certainly not judging them. So have you ever had these kinds of problems on the ground, wondering about the true religion that we say is in the Bible and we believe is in the Bible? Have you ever had understanding problems, misunderstandings about the goodness of God in difficult providences for you, wondering why God leads you or leads the church through certain ways. Well, beloved, here is the truth as it is in Jesus. And may we only go, as did Asaph, to the sanctuary that is to God and to his church and with his church to find out, to understand what is going on here in this world and that God is still good. So let's consider God good to Israel. We could really um, write all of, of these, all these sermons. It has to do with God and grace and things and being on the ground and all of that. All of these things we got to consider. But for now, God, good to Israel. And first of all, that this is a wonderful thing from heaven, a truth from heaven, a, a, um, a principle from heaven. That's the first thing I want to talk about, a principle here. God is good to Israel. The first thing the psalmist says. Second, the problem in our world. What's the problem? What's the problem the psalmist face, faces and what do we face? Third, the perspective of the sanctuary, which the psalmist speaks of, that he gained when he went to the sanctuary of God and understood the end of the wicked, verse 17. So that now, and in future sermons, we have to dwell upon the wonderful verses of what the psalmist's devotion to God was and how God was continually with him and holding him by the hand so much here. May God bless us as we hear now the goodness of God to Israel. May you hear it, too, tomorrow and the next day, in every way, God is good. We sang of that in a couple of the Psalms and songs we sang prior to the sermon. God is good. Throughout the Bible, the goodness of God is front and center. The fact that there is a God is one thing, the fact that there is a God who is good is another thing, and very understandable that. People who have God would want to know He's good. For the goodness of God is simply the virtue of His entire being, whereby He's blameless. He doesn't have any imperfections. We've been talking about the holiness of God, the justice of God. how this goodness of God is what God is in Himself. He's perfectly good. His wisdom is always good. You cannot say, well, he wasn't so wise here. His justice is always perfect. His love is always perfect and powerful. And besides that, he's, he's consistently good because he's consistently and always God. His goodness really is his godness from the perspective of the morality of God, if we can say that. He gives us a standard of the law of God, but he's not held to that standard, of course. But he's revealed in the standard as the one good God. It's good to have no other gods. For example, first commandment, because God is the only good God. It is good not to make any graven images or to take the name of God in vain because God is God. And he reveals himself in the image of his son, not in what you can concoct. And his name is his son. This is all good. It is all perfect. And God fully reveals all that he will reveal in his son, in that name given among sons of men whereby we must be saved. God is good. No fault, no problem. Never any problem. Even in the so called bad things of the earth, God is good. This is what we confess as Reformed believers. There's a God over all things, even bad things, even evil things, and even devils. There's a God over them, and He's good to be over them and still allow them, decree them, wisely appoint them to be evil. Now, how does this reconcile with our minds, our small minds, the problem of evil? How can there be God and evil? Well, if you have another solution, I'd like to hear it, but this is what God has revealed to us. He's God and he's good, even though there's evil and he's over it. He's the king over evil. Not that he is the one who sins when wicked people do wicked things but he's the king over them. The alternative is there's no God, and those who have the most might are gods, or that the devil is God over the evil. He's in charge of the evil over here, and God is in charge of the good over there, but God does not infringe upon the sovereignty and kingship of the devil uh, with his with his being God over the devil because that would make God fall for the devil and so on. So it's the ancient problem of evil that philosophers have wrestled with and even theologians and, and the same ones who wonder how many angels can dance on the head of a pin are always going about surmising how it can be so and they have to re- uh, reconcile these things, God and evil, the good God and evil with puny minds. Well, the Bible says God is good, and we might not be able to figure it out forever. And that's good enough for us, is what we say. Because he's good to us. And this is the wonderful thing that's brought out here. Truly, God is good to Israel and then Israel is defined as to such as are pure in heart. It's not the goodness of God just merely abstractly that's brought out here, but it's the goodness of God to certain people, individuals, or a nation. God is good to Israel. That would be his chosen people. But then, not just the ones chosen outwardly, but the ones who were true Israelites, to such as are pure in heart. That's what the text is saying here. The psalmist is inspired to isolate this truth of the goodness of God from the perspective of God being the God of salvation of a people. God is good to Israel. And that, not just those who have the Abrahamic nose and the genes of Abraham, or Isaac and Jacob, but those who have a heart that God has given to love him. And he's made that heart pure. That's who God is good to here. And that's what the Bible emphasizes. God is good to his people. Here is the doctrine of election. God is good to his chosen ones. And God is good to them to send Jesus Christ, to choose them in Jesus Christ. And to be that good to them that they are taken from the greatest evil, sin, to the highest good, fellowship with God, as the psalmist celebrates later on in the psalm. In heaven and on earth, there's none that the psalmist desires but God, and, and that's good for him, because God is good to him in such a way as to save him. you understand that? This is so fundamental. Knowing the goodness of God to Israel not just abstractly now, but to you and to a church of Jesus Christ that gathers in the name of God to ponder the truth that God is good to us. And not just he's good to us sometimes or he's good to us when we're pure enough in heart. That's not the idea of the psalmist here. But he's good to us in grace even when we're not so good. Good to us to save us out of the mire of our depravity and to make us who are born in Adam now to be in Christ by this wonderful gift of faith. But before even that to choose us and before even that to send his son to die for us. That's how God is good to us. He initiates the goodness to us by his grace and mercy and coming near When we were far off. And being the God who would make us who were not a people, not even of the chosen people of the Old Testament, yet to be his people and to show mercy to those who were not the mercied. He makes us now, this Israel of the New Testament, not just of a chosen tribe or 12, but of all the world. God so loves this Israel world, this chosen people of God world, that he gives his only begotten son for, that, for them. So you have here this gospel right from the get-go. It's wonderful truth, and from, it ought to be from the get-go that we understand this truth on Monday morning or coming to church because God is good to Israel in countless ways. But so often we don't count those ways, do we? We're just counting all our problems. We forget the little things. My wife and I often ponder that together. The the little things and the little ways in which God is good to us. The birds chirping, the flowers coming, the sun that we say is too hot but it's needful, the rain that we say is not enough or too much, which is needful, and maybe even though we don't understand it, God is good to us, and God is good to us and He loves us. And He wants to fellowship with us. And in fact, what He says in the book of the Bible called Romans, in chapter 8, is that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to His purpose. And a couple of verses down from Romans eight twenty-eight, which I just quoted, verse 32, He says, He who gave His Son, shall He not also freely with Him give us all things? He gives the things of the earth, the providences of God to us, the circumstances, the the singleness or the marriedness, the children or not the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, this infirmity or that, or this bit of health and period of health in our life or that. He gives all of those things exactly because he's good to Israel for the sake of his Son. Who he will glorify and say, My son is given, and I bankrupted heaven for you because I want you to know just how good my son is. How good you have it! In everything, God doesn't turn off the goodness. And even when we sin, he's good to us to draw us back. And even when we have problems, and sometimes make problems of our problems by not responding well. He's good to us to teach us, to bring, him back, to bring us back to Him. We'll be commenting on that theological truth of heaven for the duration of the series on Psalm 73. But I do want to point out that this is a principle here. Here's a principle big word for truth, an established truth that the psalmist is is living by here. You could translate the first verse here, yet God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart, or however God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. Almost as if the psalmist was thinking about all the problems he had in life and wrote the conclusion, however, at the beginning of the psalm so that that would guide him. That's what he came back to. There's this principle he can't avoid. He can't avoid the wicked and their apparent um, blessedness more than the sons of God, but he also and especially can't avoid something that is absolutely true, however much he perceives the, the truth of the state of the wicked. And the absolute truth, the principle is, God is good to Israel. God is good to me. God is good to sinful me. God is good to his ministers, to his elders, to his deacons, to his The parents that he gives to be the parents of his children. God is good to the single people of the church. God is good to us in the hospital. God is good to us when we go to heaven to be with him. He's good to us at work and at play. That's the principle. All of God's people have been guided by principles always. Did you know that? Job, for example, Job was guided by principles. He was guided by the principle that God always knows. And somewhere, I can't find right now, he cites the fact, well, yeah, verse 1 of chapter 24. Since times are not hidden from the Almighty, why do those who know him see not his days? Some remove landmarks, they seize flocks violently and feed on them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless, they take the widow's ox as a pledge. The truth for Job was the omniscience of God. Since times are not hidden from the Almighty, why do those who know him see not his days? Omniscience was a principle that Job lived by even when he was the victims of apparently um, these tragedies, these, these fingers of fate that led him to suffer so. Jeremiah also was one of the great men of principle. Righteous, chapter 12, Jeremiah, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? So there Jeremiah is picking up on a principle. He wants to apply it to the same problem that Asa was having, Asaph was having with the, the wicked who prosper. But here he's saying, This is justice, God. We 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 I, I need to talk with you and you to me about your judgments. But he's a principled man. And he knows that God is a principled God. And that God is not just theoretically good, but he's good on the ground at every moment when it doesn't seem like he's being good. And he's righteous on the ground. And he's omniscient on the ground. So you have Habakkuk, to name just one more. In chapter 1, verse 13, there's a principle that drove him. Drove him to the bakery. Drove him home from the bakery. Drove him to the pulpit. Drove him to suffer for righteousness' sake. It was a It was the principle of the holiness of God. Habakkuk Habakkuk one thirteen. You are purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who dear treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? There he's talking to God about God's holiness. And he's saying, there has to be holiness here with regard to the wicked, but it doesn't seem like that. So, there's this this terrible straight betwixt two what he sees and what he knows from the Bible the principles of the Bible and he's trying to bring them together because he knows the principles of the Bible are the things he lives by the things that are established because there is a God who's good in the heavens who's holy, who's omniscient, who's righteous so it's the goodness of God with Asaph, that is compelling him to conclude things in a certain way, but along the way, in spite of his conclusion, he's making a great big confession here. I don't get it. In fact, he says there was a time that that principle just wasn't enough for him in his mind. It didn't hold his feet. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. There's the principle. God is good. Got it. Theology. There it is. Learned it in catechism. Learned it in Sunday school. Learned it in the home. Learned it in the church. Learned it among God's people. That's true. God is good to Israel. But as for me, I'm on the ground, and my feet almost stumbled once. My steps had nearly slipped. And he almost gave up his religion. Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain and said these theological things and now I'm wondering if they're true. Have you had that? Have you had a similar problem that the psalmist has here? This is to, to relate to you. That's why God brings the psalmist here so that we can really take it home as the principles on the ground. Theology in shoe leather. As your theology on the ground, in the trenches at work, home, play, vacation. Church. When it comes to conflict, Working out things. Is your theology not fit? Are we going to change our theology? Change the word of God? Or do we have to be changed? Maybe. Here's a psalmist, real problem. The wicked were on easy street, and the righteous had a tough go. Those wicked Look how he describes them. And he he was envious of the boastful. He wanted what they had. He describes them as prosperous. He saw the prosperity of the wicked, verse 3. Then he goes in verse 4 to 9 to describe them. There's no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. Even in their dying, they seem to, to go easy, calmly, to the other world, they're not in trouble while they're on earth, as other men, or they plague like other men, and therefore pride serves their, as their necklace. Now, that's a difficult verse here to translate to interpret. It's something about uh, they're taking uh, the fact that there is no trouble in their life, or not much anyway, as an occasion to boast that there's no trouble because they're they're good and they've earned this trouble-free, peaceful, prosperous, wealthy, popular life. Pride serves as a necklace, or, or maybe they, they wear their necklace, and it's a, a, a sign of, of wealth and prosperity, and it's not the necklace that's the problem, but why they put it on, to flaunt just how good they are and how deserving of good. Violence then, this is the strange thing about the wicked, they're, they're violent, it covers them like a garment, their clothing is violence, they, they get their money by hook and by crook and not just in the good way. Their eyes bulge with abundance, they have more than heart could wish, they're not just fed but they're plumply fed and they're the, way, the wicked who have a certain look about them that all they eat is caviar and whatever else money can buy. And they scoff and they speak wickedly concerning oppression. That is, when they oppress people, they're, they're boasting about it. They're scoffing and they're mocking about these people that they enslave or that they oppress or that they push out of the market. And, and then they speak loftily against God. They set their mouth against the heavens, God in the heavens, and their tongue is the agent of their communication of their, their wickedness and their blasphemous life. It walks through the earth, travels wherever they go, and they want to make a name for themselves and, and defy the name of God. And then there's this verse 10, seems to describe the, the allegiance, the, the ones who are... Who are The flatterers of this people who hang on with them, his people therefore, because these wicked are so prosperous, they return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. It's like they they drink the dregs of the bottom of the cup of the wealthy and all the things they have. It could refer to the elect of God, but I don't think so because verse 11 says that those same people who drink the full cup of whatever dregs the wealthy have, who who tie themselves with him. Those same people say, how does God know? And is their knowledge in the Most High? They think that God doesn't see these things. And then the summary is given of these prosperous, ungodly people. These are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. So in life and in death, easy street. Then they leave their millions and billions and gazillions to their heirs and all the while they're evil, and it's not just a neutral prosperity. It's a blasphemous prosperity. How can God then be said to be good to Israel? Shouldn't he include it? Should not there be included in the theological truth that God is good to everybody? He's blessing everybody. He's giving them all a chance, and and all of these things The psalmist here has a problem with that. He won't go and break his theology because of the apparent inconsistency of the wicked's prosperity with the theology of sovereign grace in Jesus. He's not going to open up the cross to everybody. He's not going to open up the saving grace of God to everybody. not going to make it a potential kind of thing. God is good to Israel To love them, to keep them, to bless them. This problem of the wicked here, that is a problem. But I'm not going to make it something that changes. I'm not going to make my experience something that changes everything I know about the Bible interpreting itself with itself. But he has this problem. Not only because the wicked prosper, but because the righteous don't. The one thing, if we're all prospering, we could say, yeah, God is good to everybody. Good to me, good to them. I don't quite understand it, but I have a good, so I'm not going to complain. But the psalmist was noting, noticing that this prosperity isn't what I have. I'm the other men. All day long, I'm plagued and chastened every morning. Verse 14. So, is this thing that doesn't matter, that that doesn't fit, excuse me. It's incongruous with truth, this principle, that God is good to Israel, when it seems like he's being bad to Israel and and good to the wicked. It, It doesn't seem to fit, and he's tempted. He's tempted to abandon everything. Surely I've cleansed my hand in vain, washed my hands in innocence... Tempted to speak out, though he refrains himself to speak out thus, and but he refrains himself because that would be have been untrue to the generation of your children. You see, that's a a good sign. He's not going to start preaching untruth because of his experiences. It's hard times. It's not going to compromise the Bible, certain chapters of the Bible, or anything else that has to do with the truth of God. But he was struggling, to be sure. And I believe, beloved, as in all of us, and I'll we'll apply this a little bit before we get to the end, There's a problem here with the psalmist, not just what he sees of the good, (coughs) excuse me, on the earth, and that he doesn't have it so good. The problem is he's not really getting the truth, the principle. God is good to Israel, God is good to me, God is good to my family, God is good to the church of Christ. And in a moment or ten or a whole life long of having to deal with this problem on the earth is finally getting to him. And he's leaving off the truth that God is really good even now. You ever have that? I do. Every time I complain. That's what this is. Forgetting the truth, not understanding the truth not being thankful that's our problem When the bible says god is good to you and you realize that this is true because god has given jesus and the whole 9000 yards of the blessings of heaven he's given you them all forgiveness and peace with god and holiness and liberty to be servants of God and children of God and a purity of heart. Given you, that's a great gift. And when we look at the wicked and we start getting envious and we wonder why, we say basically, it's not enough, God. You haven't given me enough. I need one thing more. I want two things more. I want it better so that I can have it better because I'm just not happy. And God, somehow you're at fault. This is what we say. We're not thankful. We're not believing. We're looking at the stuff. We're looking at the problems of the good things of the earth, the providences of God, and we're forgetting that we walk not by sight, but by faith. That's true, isn't it? We walk by faith and not by sight the psalmist was having his eye on all of these things and these common occurrences and he forgot the word. But Somehow, therefore, the principle wasn't enough to keep him from slipping. The truth here, the truth taught, the truth you know wasn't enough. Not that there's any problem in the truth itself of the word, of course, there's no problem with it, but there was this resistance of the old man. And it took the grace of God to come to him and get him back to church, because that's what the psalmist says. When I thought how to understand this problem, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. That's verse 17. Isn't that a delightful verse? I'm sure you all know it. Sanctuary was the holy place of the worship of God, where God came and dwelt with the people, tabernacle, temple. And actually, the Hebrew has sanctuaries here went to the sanctuaries of God, plural. Could be referring, one says, I'm not sure, to the three places of division in the temple, the, the outer court, the holy place, and the holy of holies. Be that as it may, it's referring to this place where the people were called to congregate and to worship God with the priests, no, no doubt, but also personally in his families to bring their offerings, to, to give their thanks, to show their faith in God. You see... The principle of God being good to Israel somehow had to lead them somewhere else or somewhere in addition. That's to the sanctuary to worship God, to fellowship with God. Otherwise, the principles are nothing. The confession is nothing. The three forms of unity are nothing. The Bible is nothing unless you be led by God to receive it. And to draw near to God Himself, there has to be this working on that heart that is pure. See, see that has to be with me. Has to be with you. God uses truth and spirit to make substance out of a religion. That's how we, That's where we have to be led. Are there some of you today having to be led just there to the sanctuary with all the truth you say you know? Am I being led there? I am. I want to confess with you or to you and with you just as Asaph I am I'm a weak believer and problems come and they don't seem to go they just come and I wonder surely I've cleansed my hands and washed in vain and washed my hands and this religion isn't getting me anywhere just trouble You have that. God must work. Here's the problem of the wicked, and we'll, we'll talk about this more. We don't have time for all this. That's why we're breaking this down. The wicked are imaginary prosperous people. They're not real. They're not. They're fakes. Their prosperity is fake. There's nothing wealthy about them when you think of it. They have not God. They have things. And their made-up happiness is made-up happiness, and they never will be happy in Hollywood, to be sure, unless they be born again. And they'll never be happy if they're the Forbes, one of the Forbes 500, whatever number they come up with. No, they have their billion. Never, Never really be happy. They don't know the only comfort in life and death. They don't want to belong to Jesus. They don't belong to Jesus. They have no way of knowing the goodness of God in life with God because they're at enmity with God, and God is not showing his saving grace to them and leaving them in their wickedness and their slippery places, as the Bible says here. That's all they have is a slippery, foundationless, muddy place. That's it, and they're going to be destroyed forever. But what I'm trying to address here is that we can be these kind of imaginary Christians. God, the psalmist says here, when he awakes, will despise the image of the ungodly. Not that God ever sleeps, but when he's roused to show his wrath and to lead to destruction and actually to destroy the wicked, it will be like he's waking up and having his justice now applied, and so all can see it. But he's going to despise their image, that is, their fakeness. Oh, Beloved, how much more in Israel, among the people who are not pure in heart, maybe among some of us here, will God despise our imaginary worship, our religion that has a form but no power. Our religion is that's only so good except when it takes a cross, to reconcile to God and to one another. That's fake. At the very point where Christianity is the best of all the religions, the cross of Calvary. And the only one, because there's the blood of Jesus. Well, he went to the sanctuary, and he had the principle not only but he had the God of the principle. May you go to the sanctuary, beloved, and have the God of that principle. That's the beauty of the truth. That's the beauty of the truth that God is good to Israel. Surely he is to such as are pure in heart. For you, for me, take it to heart. How do you go to the sanctuary today? on your knees, it's the only way in to the sanctuary of God, not to church, you can take your car, walk on two feet, carry the children in, but God has to put you on your knees and lead you by grace and give you to fall before him for once instead of rising up in defiance of him or being another help besides him as if you and God together are going to make it good. God is good all by himself, and good to you all by himself. Now, go to the sanctuary, open the word of God humbly and by faith. This for you, congregation of sovereign grace. A group of sheep, a congregation of sheep, but whose shepherd is surely good even Jesus Christ, and he's guiding you by his counsel in order to receive you afterward to glory. Isn't that good of God? Yes, it is. Amen. Father, we thank you. You are the God of our life now and life forever. You are surely our God. This is what we discovered again today. You just spoke to us And he gave us ears to hear and say, Amen. And now, Father, we pray to be real. Real according to principle. Real according to piety. Grant your spirit, Lord, the struggles great. We often envy the wicked and their prosperity. We want just a little bit of both worlds. The goodness of God. The goodness of, well, what people can provide. This earth can provide. Lord, we want to know you. And you are good to us. And our goodness, the best thing in our life, is that we draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen.